Oh, thanks. God is good, isn't he? Oh, all the time. And um, so I was just thinking what to do here. So I, yeah, God is good and he speaks, uh, he speaks to us. And um, I had a, a really good opening written here. It was funny, uh, this opening I had written. <clears throat> and uh, I, don't, I sort of don't say that subjectively, like it's objectively funny. <coughs> um, but, you know, I think what Adam said really is kind of basically everything I want to say today. And uh, sometimes it feels odd to sort of jump off the back of something like that and then have to preach this sermon uh, that you've written. But essentially what I wanted to say today is that all of us desire to be known. And there's something about being human, uh, which is a desire to be known. Um, Last week, Johnny and Amy talked about the fact that to be human, first of all, means to be known by God, to have this longing to be known by God. That's where it starts. And that's where it ends, to be known by God. Everything else flows from that. There's this interesting moment in um, Genesis uh, chapter 2. The whole way through the start of the Bible, up to that point, first chapter and a half, God keeps repeating this refrain, it's good, it's good, it's good. He makes the world and everything in it is good, full of goodness. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 19, 18. And there's one thing which is not good. God says, there's one thing that's not good. It's not good, he says, for man, human being, to be alone. It's not good for human being to be alone. It's not good for human being not to be known by another. It's not good. Um, Brené Brown says, as human beings, we are physically, emotionally, cognitively, spiritually hardwired for connection, love, and belonging. I'll read that again. We are physically, emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually hardwired for connection, love, and belonging. We all desire to be known. Last week, Johnny and Amy, as I said, talked about what it is to be known by God. And we said that as a church, we were going to commit to doing a few things, a few practices that are part of our way, one way that we found it helpful to stay connected to God. We'll pray a psalm in the morning, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer at midday, and then in the evening we'll do some form of examine or something like that. That's what it looks like for us to stay connected to God as well as everything else that we're doing to walk that walk but today I want to talk about what does it mean to be connected with others connected with others and I know that lots of you have been asking us um, as a team and asking one another what does it look like to be connected to others in Trinity Church Nottingham you know when we first came to the city of Nottingham that was sort of a fairly easy concept there were sort of five or six of us and it was quite easy to stay connected it would have been quite awkward if we weren't but you know as the church grows a bit bigger 35 50 yeah maybe it's possible to know everybody to stay connected to everybody just naturally but then it gets to 100 and 200 and listen our vision here is not to see a big church our vision here is not to see growth for growth's sake numbers for numbers sake our vision is to see a church on fire and a city alive and if God wants to grow his church then we welcome it with open arms but we want to see a church on fire first and foremost but it has got big it has got big and you look around now and it's impossible for each of us to know everybody else in the room it's impossible for each of us to know the names of everybody else in the room on a Sunday or on a midweek or whatever it is 
And so the question for us is, well, what does it look like for us to be connected to one another? If our deepest God-given longing is to be known, known by him first and foremost, yes. But also God says it's not good to be alone, to be known by others. What does it look like to have that longing of our soul fulfilled in this place, to be met in this place by others? What is it going to look like? And so this morning I just want to talk a little bit about that, just off the back of what Adam said essentially. What does it look like for you and I to be known by the others in this place? And uh, I want to talk about the, the um, what of that, I want to talk about the why, and I want to talk about the how. What's it going to look like, why are we doing it, and uh, how are we going to do it? So we've had our reading this morning, and our reading this morning, Jesus takes his followers, his disciples, up the mountain. He takes three of them, these two brothers, James, John, and Peter, up the top of this mountain. Now, this is interesting because Jesus has 12 disciples. He has 12 disciples. And more than that, he has a whole load of followers. In Luke, for example, we see that he sends out 72 of his followers. And then there's an even bigger group of sort of like interested people. And Jesus connects with people at each level, the crowd, the 72, the 12, and then the three. But there's something for Jesus that's significant about this three. Why take three up the mountain? There's a depth of connection A depth of being known that can only be shared by that three. So in this dramatic moment of his life, he takes these three up the mountain. Jesus has his one, the Father. We looked at that last week. That's the basis of everything, him and God. Then he has followers. He has 72, and then he has his few. And so the first place we wanted to start as a church in forming connections with one another, now that we've established that it starts with the one, with our Father, now that we've established that, We wanted to say that the next step is with the few, with the three. And there's other ways that we thought it would be good for people to form connections in the church. Other groups, other forms that that will look like. But today I just want to talk about the few. I wanted to start here. The three or four. And so the what. Here's the what. Here's what we want to say. The invitation is for you, each of you, every single person in this room, to become part of a few. The three go up a mountain together and they see Jesus. That's the invitation. Join with three or four people of the same sex who you'll meet with regularly and who commit to honesty, helping one another up individual mountains so that they might see Jesus better, to follow him better and become more like him, to form relationships with them, to be honest with them, pray with them, be on the journey towards deeper encounter with Jesus. And our hope is that every single person might be in a few. That's our hope. That's the invitation. That's the invitation. And so the why. That's the what. What about the why? Why do we see this as important? I've got three things to say. Is that okay? You with me? Okay. So three things. First of all, we believe that ultimately there's only one person who can help you go deeper with God. One person. And that's you. God in Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, consistently, constantly, endlessly reaches out to each of us. But we ourselves are responsible for receiving that. That's why we so often stand with open hands, that posture of receiving. 
We saw this in the series we did in a, uh, before and during the summer. We did this series, didn't we, Jesus and the One. And time and time again, what we saw was that Jesus addresses the One, addresses the individual, because he knows that the responsibility for that person's life lies ultimately with them. Like he even asked a few times, what do you want? I can't do it for you, he's saying. What do you want? Because the truth is, you and I, we can't outsource our discipleship. We can't outsource our discipleship. Amidst structures and programs and books and podcasts and worship music and home groups, Bible studies, you add whatever, sooner or later that question comes to each of us. Jesus asks each of us, what do you want? You have been gifted this life to take responsibility, to take care of it. What do you want? And so we wanted to find a structure, first and foremost, a context where that can best happen, where each of us can take hold more of Jesus and the life he offers. And it feels for us, it's felt for us, and we're certainly not the only ones saying it. It's not like we feel we've come up with this brilliant, imaginative new idea. We're just following in the footsteps of others. But it's felt to us like that process, that process of each of us taking responsibility and stepping forward, receiving more from Jesus for ourselves, that that takes place best in smaller units, smaller, closer units of three and four rather than, say, in a 12 or a 15 or in the 72 or whatever. Why is that? Well, there's something about intimacy. There's something about intimacy of a three. Something about the inability to hide in a three. The need for vulnerability, to really know, and here's the thing, be known by someone else, that makes this a vehicle of discipleship. Last week, Johnny and Amy, they talked about surrender. They said that a church on fire is full of a people surrendered to God. I love that. It's not about this being the strongest, not the most effective, but the most abandoned. Not a group of people who have it all together, but the opposite, the opposite of that. A broken people, a people surrendered to God. A group of people who act, give, love, serve, as if God really was their hope. To grow in discipleship then is to grow in surrender. And the few, I think, is what surrender looks like in communal form. Right? You have to let go of more. You have to be vulnerable in a three. You have to open up. Literally surrender information about yourself. There'll be a gracious exposure that happens in the few, just like it did yesterday for Adam. And I love that in verses 9 and 10, if you've got your Bibles open, Mark 9, verses 9 and 10. It says this. As they, the three, were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And then it says this, they, the three, kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. I love that he puts that in inverted commas there. There was a confusion amongst them, confusion amongst the three, and they had to name it. You see, in a Bible study or a 12, this is what can happen, right? You blag it. You can blag it in a 12. You can hide away. The leader says, just to be clear, we're all on the same page. We all know what rising from the dead means, right? We all know that. And you sort of, along with everybody else, sort of nod and go, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And inside you're thinking, I've got no idea what on earth is going on, right? But this three, they kept it to themselves, and then they had to be vulnerable enough to admit it. Peter, John says, "I've, I've honestly, I've got no idea what just happened, right? It was incredible. It was beautiful. I want to see more of it. I'm more in love with Jesus than ever, but I do not understand what the flip just happened. And Peter is like, yes. Me too. I didn't get it either. That's what the three is about. It's about naming your limits 
and allowing others to walk you through them. Vulnerability is what surrender looks like with other human beings. And I'm passionate about this. I could talk about this a lot. Um, I'm passionate about vulnerability in smaller groups. And um, I wasn't always. I remember two really, really significant conversations that happened to me that I was involved in in my life. And they both happened within about a few weeks of each other. Really, really significant moment. I was at university, in my first year of university. And the first one happened when I was coming back from the golf course. That's what I used to do as a student. I used to play golf at two o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) And sometimes I was stressed. Can you believe that? Two o'clock in the afternoon. Anyway, I was coming back from university. I was carrying from the golf course to my university halls. I was carrying my own golf bag. That's how poor I was. I couldn't even afford a caddy. And um, I was carrying my golf bag back. And my friend of mine, who became a very, very good friend of mine, but at that point was just a friend, he was asking me questions about my faith. He wanted to go deeper into some certain issues. And I remember, I don't remember most of the conversation, but I remember exactly what I said to him. This is what I said to him. I was about 18. I said, I do not want to talk anymore about my faith. This is what I said. My faith is a private matter. I do not want to talk about it. That was my attitude. Okay, a few weeks later, I was taken out for coffee by somebody, and this person who took me out for coffee um, was somebody who worked for UCCF, for the Christian Unions. And he took me out for coffee because I'd got to know a few of his friends, and he said, if you're going to be friends with them, then it'd be good if I got to know you a little bit as well, so I'll take you out for coffee. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but he had a reputation for being... I think it's fair to say fairly direct. Uh, he's from a, a, a different country where probably for them being more direct is uh, more, you know, where they're at home. And so he took me out for coffee. I thought we were going out for a nice coffee, have a nice chat. He'll get to know me. I'll get to know him. Fine. We did that for the, about five minutes. And then he turned to me. I remember he said to me, he said, Will, what do you struggle with? He said, Will, what do you struggle with? And I gave some answer. You know, I struggle with a bit of doubt and sometimes I don't read my Bible in the mornings and that kind of thing. And then he looked at me He leant in, he looked at me, he was like he was looking at my soul, and he said to me, Will, what do you struggle with? And there was something for me about that moment that, if I'm honest, completely changed my life, completely changed my life. By the way, something interesting about that moment, Vicky was in that coffee shop at the time, just across the way, just completely randomly, Vicky was in that coffee shop. And it was a moment that changed my life forever. She wasn't listening in quite, fortunately. <laughs> Otherwise, she might not be here today. <laughs> he said, well, what, what do you struggle with? And I told him things that I'd never told another human being. And that's not an exaggeration. I told him things that I'd never, ever told another human being. And it just came out of me. And in that moment, it's one of the few moments in my life where everything changed. Everything changed for me. It wasn't as if the struggles went away. It wasn't as if the battle went away. If anything, they were more vivid. But it was like this weight had been lifted off my shoulders. By being vulnerable, by being open, and it took a lot of effort, it took a lot of energy, but by being vulnerable, I walked out of that place feeling so much freer. And from that point on, I just chased it. I chased any opportunity I had to find somebody that I could confess to, somebody I could be honest with, vulnerable with, authentic with, honest with. I formed prayer triplets. I formed prayer partnerships. This guy who, who had asked me those questions on the golf course, I then became best friends with him, and he shared some really vulnerable stuff with me. We used to pray together most days, an incredible time of my life of being open and honest. And since then, I've continued that process. If there's one practice 
one thing I think we need essential in terms of growing up in our discipleship. It's to be vulnerable with others. Call it accountability, call it confession, call it journeying together, I don't know. I simply think we will not grow further. We'll sort of hit a limit until we learn that we need to be willing to be vulnerable with others. So that's the first thing. Second, the reason for threes. The first thing is that we need to learn to surrender and be vulnerable. The second thing is that we need people who speak to us, to us. Now, I'm speaking to you now, but I'm not really speaking to you. I'm speaking to a congregation. I'm speaking, you know, God willing, there's words that are going into your hearts by his Holy Spirit. But you need people in your life who know you, who know your stuff, who know your struggles and who speak to you. One of my heroes is a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer lived um, during the rise of Nazism, and he formed a community, and he wrote a little book about this community, and it's called Life Together. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And I want to read a quote from that book, something that Bonhoeffer said. And just work with me on this. This is what Bonhoeffer says. This is what he writes about Christian community. God, he says, has willed that we should seek and find him in the words of other Christians. The Christian needs other Christians again and again when she becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by herself, she cannot help herself. She needs her fellow Christian as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in her own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of her brother or sister. The Christ in our own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of her brother or sister. Bonhoeffer is essentially saying, you know, that's the way God set this show up. That was his plan all along. We always needed other people to help us on this journey. See, some of us, we see sort of being independent. We see making it on our own as the goal. And we hear that thing about, you know, Jesus and just his father. And we sort of think, that's what I want to pursue. I don't need anybody else. And what Bonhoeffer is saying is, if we're going to pursue God as our one, if we're going to pursue our father as our one, we're going to need other people constantly to help us. It's not weakness. It's strength. It's not weakness. It's courage to rely on others. I need other people to speak that word. And when he says that, that divine word of salvation, essentially what he's saying is we need other people to speak into our lives the truths that God proclaims over us. We need other people to speak into our lives the love of God into our lives. I shared a few weeks ago how I was talking to, I'm in a three, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but one of my threes, I was on the phone to him, and I was going through this really, really difficult thing that I was struggling with. And I shared a few weeks ago how he just, on the phone, he just went quiet for a second, and then he just said to me, he said, Will, what if Jesus is just kinder than you think? What if Jesus is kinder than you think? And it changed everything for me. I need people like that to speak words into my life. And for some of us, what these threes, these fours will do is there'll be a group of people who remind us of what is most true about us. When we come to that group and we've messed up that day or we've forgotten something or we've fallen back into that pattern, when we feel that we've messed up, when we feel that everything is about us, when we can see no way through, when we can see no hope, when all is lost, we need companions on the journey who are going to speak to us and say, I've seen you in this place before and I've seen you get out of it. I've seen what Jesus has done for you in the past and he can do it again. You are not that person. That's not who you are. I know you and that's not who you are. And they'll challenge, they'll call out stuff we each of us need people like that to speak God's truth over our lives. The Christ in my own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of one of my three or my four. 
And so threes, they help us take responsibility for our walk of faith by enabling vulnerability. Second, they allow us to hear God's good news spoken to us. But the third thing, I think, the third thing that I'm so excited about threes and fours, the few, is that through them I really believe that we can begin to develop what I've called the, the art of friendship, the lost art of friendship. Now, a bit of context here. Around the same time as I had those conversations, something else happened in my life. And that thing that happened in my life was Facebook. I was in my first year of university when Facebook came on the scene. Now, up to this point, I had friends. Right? I had ten, about 10 of them. And um, I knew what my friends were into because they were into the same stuff I was. That's why they were my friends. And they were my, from my school. And at weekends, we used to play PlayStation. We'd play pool or we'd uh, drink a bit too much Coca-Cola, and we'd wrestle. <laughs> we would wrestle. <clears throat> I'd fallen out and made up with almost all of them, all ten, at some point. And then, 2004, a few months into my university experience, in my room on my laptop, I get an invite from my roommate. to. Jo- he's, I mean, he sat there, but he invites me sort of digitally. <laughs> <clears throat> to join this new thing. The, definite article, Facebook. <laughs> the Facebook. And the world opened up. Overnight, my number of friends went from 10 to 12. No, I'm joking. It went, <laughs> it went big. Um, there were only a few universities on there at this time. And unlike Johnny, I didn't have any friends at Oxbridge or Durham. <laughs> So I now had more friends, seriously, more friends than I knew what to do with. That word friend then changed meaning. And listen, you might just say it's just a semantic thing. It's just a word thing and the concept hasn't sort of fundamentally changed, maybe. But I do think we have a problem. And whether social media caused it or is just sort of a um, part of it or just a reflection of it, it's wrapped up um, all together with this, also this problem that we're so transient um, these days, you know, we, we move around a lot. We expect to be in different places all the time. We're more individualistic as a society. But anyway, on the whole, in our society, for whatever reason, we've lost the art of friendship, deep friendship. You know that kind of deep friendship, right? That long-term stick with it, share my stuff with them friendship. Right? You know the sort of friendship that sees you through good and bad, laughs with you, sort of friendship that knows your addictions, helps you through them, that laments with you, cries with you, falls out with you and then forgives you. Friendship that sits by the bedside, waits for the phone call, that holds, mops up, changes. That's the kind of friendship that we need. We need people to celebrate with. We need people to mourn with. And so I see two problems. One is about quantity, the other quality. Johnny, by the way, preached a a really good sermon on this a few, probably about a year ago now, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon on friendship. Just two problems. Quantity. I observe that we have too many friends. I think this is a modern phenomenon. We have too many friends. We try to do life with too many people. And so instead of friends, what we actually have are acquaintances. We have networks instead of neighbors. Instead of deep connections, we have contacts. We go broad and shallow when we need to be going narrower and deeper. And part of the point of the threes or fours is realizing that there is a limit to the number of people I can be friends with. And by the way, research is showing this too. 
that having too many friends or too many acquaintances actually diminishes our capacity to have deep friendships that actually last. We sort of water down our capacity for love and for kindness. Contacts are good. It's good to be part of a group, don't get me wrong. But the question is, who are your friends? We need to think more in terms of threes, fours, than fifteen. Second quality. I think we have this particular issue, and this is just from hearing people speak um, in the church and elsewhere, that we sort of somehow need to be part of an in-crowd, that there's an in-crowd that I'm not quite part of, and I need to get there, and until I'm there, I'm sort of not quite in. And I haven't got time to unpack that, but hopefully it's clear to me why that can't be the case uh, for the Jesus way. You know, friendship is not a way of me getting to some inner sanctum, to the in-crowd, of climbing a social ladder. It's me trusting myself to another, learning to love that flawed, broken, hurting person, because it's only by loving that person well that I'll learn to see my own brokenness. And I think there can be a fear in this culture of ours that sort of sees endless opportunity as a virtue in and of itself, that to choose to be faithful to one or two or three is somehow sort of deeply limiting, like we're missing out on some other exciting possibility if we commit to these We're formed from the TV we watch to the devices in our pockets to be connected all the time, to everything all the time. But Jesus doesn't seem fussed by that, right? He has a different strategy. He has a different strategy. He chooses Peter and James and John from Galilee, and he sticks with them. He must have met, Jesus, so many other people along the way who would have made better, smarter disciples. But this is his three. This is his three. And so he sticks with them, And here's the thing, by the way, he sticks with you and with me. Even though there are plenty others who would be better at this than me or you. You know, we are here because he befriended us. That's the point. John's gospel puts it like this. Jesus says to his friends, I chose you. You did not choose me. I chose you. He is a good friend to us. He is a true friend to you. It's you he wants. He doesn't secretly want somebody else. And this is why Eugene Peterson, who died this week, says that friendship is an art, even a spiritual discipline. He says friendship, get this, Eugene Peterson, friendship is as important as prayer and fasting. And I think he's right on that. Friends, we need a church, a community who practice the art of spiritual friendship. We need to show the city how it's done. And that's the why of the few. We grow as we're vulnerable. We need people to speak God's word to us and we learn what true spiritual friendship looks like. Now, I'm in a few. I'm in one of these. I've been doing it a while and there's, a, there's some other sort of threes and fours uh, that are already existing, bubbling up from within the church. And I'm so excited to hear stories of those. It, it deeply encourages me to hear those stories. And uh, one of the things I would say about our three, our four, I'm not going to share too much, but one of the things I would say is that we're sort of constantly in this tension between it's the most beautiful thing in the world and it's quite awkward thing as well. We're constantly sort of in that tension and that's the place that we exist. It's not being constant, ongoing, laugh a minute, entertainment, deep tears every single time. But the other night something interesting happened. It was about a month ago now. And we gathered around at my house, and uh, Vicky had gone out, so I was in with the kids. Put the kids down to bed, came downstairs, feeling a little tired. Uh, the guys came around, we, put on a, we had a cup of tea. We sat down, and for whatever reason, we'd been meeting probably for, I don't know, four or five months up to that point. For whatever reason, the atmosphere changed. Something happened in the room. 
And we were completely vulnerable with one another, completely honest with one another. We prayed prayers over one another. We felt God gave us sort of words to share with the other person. It was like God's presence was thick in the room. And there were tears and um, it was rich. We shared a few words of scripture. It was an incredibly rich time, the sort of time you think, you know, if you could take me now, that'd be done. That's fine. One of those sort of moments. And then we met the next week, and guess what? We were back to the sort of difficult conversation of awkwardness, and we probably met in the wrong place, and we're struggling to get our diaries together and find the right place to meet. But something happened that night that kind of, I think for us, was a sign that, you know, whatever it looks like week by week, whatever it feels like week by week, actually, I'm deeply, deeply in this. That was a conviction of ours that God has been, is in this, has been in this from the start, and promises to be in it again three or four people together helping one another up their particular mountains so they might see Jesus better. So the how, we've done the what, we've done the why. What about the how? The invitation again, to state it, is to form a three or a four with people of the same sex who you'll meet with regularly and who commit to honesty, helping one another on the path of following Jesus and becoming like him. That's the invitation. And that word invitation is really important. This isn't a rollout. This isn't a sort of a church program, a church system. Basically, we're going to do nothing from this point on beyond this. If you want to go back and listen to this sermon again, you can. If you want to come and speak to us, then please do. We'd love to do that. We've got a few ideas of what it might look like, and maybe we'll share those in time. But this is an invitation, something for you guys to do, an invitation for young, for old, for everyone. And I say that this isn't just for the young people. This is for every single person, no matter what stage of the journey you're on. This is for all of us. I've just got a few points, a few points of just what this might look like just um, before we end, and then we'll come to the Lord's table for communion. The first thing I want to say, if this is going to work, and I'm carefully using that word, but if this is going to happen, then the invitation is to commit to a few. Commit. Be in. Go through the awkwardness and complexity of it. Only then will you taste the challenge as well as the joy of this. But we want to say that it's not forever. We're not asking you to form threes and fours. We're not inviting you to form threes and fours for the rest of your life. You know, you're stuck with these people. And if day one it goes bad, you're thinking, oh gosh, here we go. This is it. I've signed my life away. Do it for two terms. Try it for two terms. Stick with it just long enough that if it's hard, it'll be a good thing. But you're not signing your life away. So commit to it. Secondly, the point is not to find the perfect group. This is really important. Don't wait until you're 100% confident about the chemistry or character or maturity levels. Don't think of people you already know and get on well with. Don't just think of them. You probably won't grow much in a group like that. It doesn't even need to be with people from this church, just people who want to be open and honest and vulnerable and are walking the way of Jesus. There is, of course, a question about safety, about trust. Right? You probably are not going to want to do this with somebody who is not really committed to being honest or you feel won't hold that sense of sacredness or trust. But safety is different from comfort. Right? Safety is different from comfort. Be prepared to think outside of the box. Our hope is that some of these threes and fours will look strange. They will look mixed in terms of age, life stage, and experience. Thirdly, meet at least once a fortnight. Regularity is key. Four, what do you do? What does it look like? Well, for the first few sessions, what about if just each of you just share your story? Just share your story. That's what we did. We went out for a meal, and we spent, each person probably spent about two hours just sharing their story, what brought them to this point. 
that's the first three weeks for us done. And then from that point on, we just sort of went back to those stories. We asked each other a few questions each time. We prayed for one another. We just checked in with how one another were doing. And we went from there. And then we prayed. If you want help with the structure or what it might look like, just give it a go. And we'd love to help you with that if we can. Five, expect the mess. This will be, listen, this is going to be so, so messy. The challenge of finding a three or four in the first place, the potential to be disappointed, the awkwardness of asking somebody, the challenge of matching your schedules, the clumsiness of the first few months of doing this. Am I talking too much? Am I not talking enough? Embrace the mess is the thing. A lot of the reason that we as a society have gone the way that we have with friendship is because we've tried very, very hard to avoid any mess. Any challenge and difficulty, but you know, love is messy, to give a cliche. If we're to recapture true friendship, then we'll need to enter the mess and go through it. There is gold to be mined here. There is gold to be mined. Six, and finally, vulnerability will come, but it will take time. It will take time. Take it at your own pace. Some of us are like, when we come into church in this, on Sunday morning and someone says, how are you doing? Some of us are like, vomit out our life on that person, <laughs> right? Our deepest, deepest secrets. Right. Some of us are like that. Some of us, however, are at the other end of that. We've got things that we've never told another human being. Okay. And we're all on that journey together. But vulnerability will come. No one's asking you to go from naught to 100 in week one. Take it easy. Take it. You give as much as you want to give. Commit to the group, and over time you'll share. That's what will happen. Vulnerability, which is the goal, will take time.